1: Hi, I'm Phil Craig. And I'm Andrew Loney.
2: And together we aim to bring you the most scandalous stories and some of the most scandalous people in history. So thanks for joining us here on the Scandalmongers
1: podcast. Well, I think it's been a pretty amazing week, hasn't it? Uh, We've done our two royals last week, and I think the figures are looking pretty good.
2: Yeah, we must do this again,
1: you know, two episodes in a week. People
2: seem to lap it up.
1: Um, Yes. Well, actually, be interested to hear what people say. You know, I I quite like the idea of having two counterbalancing speakers uh, on an issue uh, quite close together, uh, because I think we got quite a lot of debate going, didn't we?
2: Yes, we did. We did, and I think the fact that we'd done one program made more people come back for the second. Um, You know, uh, we got twenty thousand views on YouTube pretty much in about four days, which for us is amazing. Um, I don't know yet about Apple but I'm sure that's been quite good. And loads of, hundreds of comments. People arguing with us, (laughs) arguing with each other, but really engaged in what both Colin Campbell and Clive Irving said.
1: Gosh, and was there any particular, uh, I mean, sympathy one way or the other, or was it pretty balanced? Well,
2: I think maybe each speaker attracts a slightly different audience. Um, I think a lot of people listening to Clive were inclined to be kind. And maybe understanding towards Meghan and Harry and yeah. think that there is something in this racism allegation, you know, and listen to what he said about the history of the royal family and Britain's history with empire and how that somehow connects to this. And maybe it's a sort of no spoke without fire argument, but people, people do buy it. Whereas with Lady Colin Campbell, um, you know, the, the people that she brings in, and she brings it a lot, um, are inclined, I think, to, 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 to take her views, which is that, you know, Meghan essentially is a. Is is winding Harry up and trying to kind of um, Most use use racism really yeah. to settle scores, advance her own career, whatever?
1: I don't know. Gosh, and what's been? I mean, what's your take on on the, of the royal family's response? I mean, it's been quite sort of measured, but they say they're going to to look at all options, aren't they? Well, I was going to ask you that, Andrew. You're our expert.
2: <laughs> they've, they've been so quiet. That's the yeah. thing that surprised me.
1: Well, I mean, that's always the policy, that the problem will go away, don't fan the flames of publicity, sit it out, and it'll be fine. And I think public support, certainly in this country, is is for the royal family. They've been given they feel that these are very unfair accusations, as was my reading of the press. And I think what will be interested to see is with the leak in Holland, whether that was deliberate, and they basically sacrificed the Dutch print run, which is very small, or whether it was an accident. So it, it, if, if the agent, for example, is sued for making that mistake, uh, I mean, the blame, is, you know, and the blame is the Dutch publisher, but it looks possible that uh, the script was sent before it was legaled, which I find very surprising.
2: Yeah, I, I mean, if you remember when Oprah happened and this allegation was first aired about the baby, they did release the famous statement. The Queen herself released a statement. It was seen as so serious yeah um you know recollections may vary, she said
1: um, uh, and William's saying we're not a racist
2: family, and Williams saying we're not a racist family. I mean now we know that Kate's in the frame for this, that perhaps explains the kind of vehemence and strength of feeling that we saw in William that week, don't you think,
1: yeah? yes possibly i mean what surprised me too is that more figures haven't come forward to, to to talk about the work of the royal family to to combat racism i mean if you think of the the king's prince's trust i think now called the king's trust you know he's done an amazing uh, job to to help um young black um particularly young black um people uh, people so it's it, it's it's strange. They're having to fight this battle on their own, and you would have thought there would have been more people coming forward, at least speaking on their behalf, which which isn't the case.
2: Well, yes, they've been very quiet, and so too as Harry and Meghan. They've said they've said nothing because this is the most extreme version of the allegation we've heard. That they're naming Charles and they're naming Kate. Somebody has named them um, apparently in a letter, which somehow got to this writer. Um, well, so they're they're obviously just I don't know if they're enjoying the spectacle. I mean, Harry's been in court, I think, on two different cases, or his lawyers have.
1: Yeah, still fighting the protection thing. And I find that slightly ironic, because he's the one who actually blew the floor plan of Buckingham Palace and Spare, which actually may have put the royal family security at risk. And I'm still waiting for a decision from my November uh, 2022 tribunal on the 1932 file that was supposed to jeopardize the security of the royal family today. So, I mean, there's not a consistent approach to all this. Uh, you know, the royal family seem to be able to leak their own secrets, but we're not allowed to look at the documents, uh, which are now in the archives.
2: Well, you obviously need to
1: hire Harry's lawyers, Andrew. It's easy. (laughs) Yes, indeed. Yeah. But yes, no, it's, it's the, the story's running. Um, I think that their silence speaks volumes. I mean, this would be an opportunity to, to, to for that reproach more, they're so keen on uh and as you say i mean it's extraordinary they haven't said anything they're just letting the story run and take it maybe there's
2: more i mean some people have speculated maybe there's more maybe there were more explicit conversations around race perhaps he confronted them at some point maybe megan said something i don't know um it is weird to me that they're so quiet because it is as we discussed with clive it's extremely damaging especially outside britain to have this hanging over
1: them i think Yes, well, it would be interesting. We have had some comments from, from you know around the world, from Australia and the Caribbean. I mean, it would be interesting to see how people view the situation there because that's where it's going to be played out, not so much here in the States, as Clive said. Um, but it's... Oh, well, it's but, hitting... um,
2: yeah, well, anybody just to say, everybody who's found the show and if you're still with us today, um, if you're enjoying what we're doing, if you're part of the 20,000 that tuned in last week, you know, it's very easy to click the little subscribe button. We're still keen to get more and more of those. It really helps us um, get prominence on YouTube. Um, the more clicks we get and the more comments, apparently, we get, the higher we get up the kind of mysterious algorithm. So it'll pop up in more people's feeds.
1: Yes, that would be great because, I mean, people seem to enjoy the the, the the range, and it's a very eclectic range, and they seem to feel that we are fair in our um, comments or our interviews with people. We let them speak. Uh, and um, a lot of podcasts are not like that. Uh, I think listening to other podcasts, there's a nice nice balance that we have. Well, we certainly try. Well, talking about balance and variety, should we move on to Jimmy Savile? Yes, and more scandal. Yeah. New, uh, I mean, this uh, could be very interesting. So It's something people keep asking about, and it's actually not a subject I know much about, um, though he was friends with with two of the people I've written about, Lord Mountbatten and Andrew.
2: Well, I think we should give a very quick... Um, pen portrait of this man to anybody outside Britain who's never heard of him because he was an extraordinarily odd and very British character. Um, incredibly famous and popular here. Uh, one of the country's first disc jockeys, a radio personality, TV personality in children's television, um, friend of royalty, a friend of politicians, um, uh, one of the country's most successful charity organisers, um, and a, just a really big figure in national life in the seventies and the eighties. Um, almost yeah, too
1: big to fail, I suspect.
2: Yes. Yes. Well, the, the, the man we're going to speak to, his book, what's it called? Andrew, is it in plain sight?
1: Yes. Yep. Yes.
2: So what happened was, you know, almost in plain sight throughout his career at the very top of kind of show business in Britain, he was repeatedly targeting young girls. Um, illegally young girls and, and teenage girls who were of age, predatory, um, groping, grabbing, and more serious sexual offenses were then later um, came out when he died uh, rape and all, all manner of abuse. And it turned out he'd been given access to institutions that he should never have been anywhere near. And it also turned out that lots of people had, had complained, but these complaints had gone nowhere. And I thought, just yeah. to give a flavor, I found this amazing quote from Savile's own book. He wrote his own autobiography in the 70s, where he openly talks about his life as a disc jockey in the clubs in Yorkshire, where he made his name, and how teenage runaways would fall into his grasp. And he would take them home, and he would have sex with them. And he he uses phrases like, once we'd had our fun with them, we gave them back to the police. And one day, um, a police officer, a female police officer, wanted to take him to, wanted to pursue this and wanted to bring charges. And this is the quote that um, Savile, who has made it his business to get to know the coppers, by the way, he's already friends with the police, and he's doing charity gigs, and he's always there with the chief constable on the telly. And he says this: "This woman officer was dissuaded from bringing charges against me by her colleagues, for it was well known that if I were to go down, I'd probably take half the station with me." Gosh, it's such a horrible insight into. Yes. The politics of Britain in those days
1: yes well it shows how attitudes have changed I mean you know it's it's extraordinary that the, what people were able to get away with uh, and there was much more so was deference to to people like that um uh, and I mean we're still seeing a lot of cover-ups I think one of the one of our themes in some of the next few episodes is 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 scandals with cover-ups
2: indeed indeed and a lot of victims of Savile, which actually included his own niece by the way. But they were—they tended to be girls from poor backgrounds, and maybe they were in homes. And he found his way to get into those places and to meet those people. And they had—they had low status. People did not listen to them, and many of them did complain. Many of them did. And the police actually, you know, investigated, and I'm sure that Dan, our interviewee, will explain multiple times, and nothing was done.
1: Yeah. No, no, it is shocking. Uh, You know, and. One worries that these things still go on, um, and, and, and rich and powerful people are able to, to avoid any sort of, uh, scrutiny. I think that's true. Do you know Dan? Actually, I've never met him before. No, no. I mean, you know, we, we, we often rely on our own contacts, but it's just because he is the, the expert on the subject that we approached him.
2: Yes. And there was a recent BBC drama, which was really very good, which I think if it wasn't based on his book, it was largely influenced by it, I think.
1: Yes, yes, and no, I think it was based on his book. It was. No, I think it, it'll be a very interesting programme, I'm sure. Um, All right. Well, um, I forget, is it Madeleine McCann next week? Um, I'm not quite sure. Uh, I, I thought... Oh, Jeremy it, Thorpe,
2: I'm not sure either.
1: Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure. Well, let's make it Madeline McCann. How about that?
2: Well, a lot of people have asked us to do the Madeline McCann show, so, um, okay, fingers crossed, because we don't always control these things as... As, as well as we'd like. and think people change their plans and we have technical issues, but um, yeah, me, come next week. Jimmy Saddle now, what do you say?
1: Uh, let's go for it.
2: All right. Bye. Bye. Dan, welcome. Thank you very much, Phil. Cheers. And hopefully Andrew will be turning up in a moment.
0: Oh, well, we'll, we'll wait with bated breath.
2: <laughs> well, I was, I'm really looking forward to speaking to you. It's been a, a, a tricky interview to arrange because you're such a busy man these days and um, we were saying in our introduction that you're, you're, you're actually in, the, the or rather an actor playing you is in the recent um, Jimmy
0: Savile drama. Did you help them write that as well? I didn't help them write it, no. It was written by Neil Mackay. Um, I didn't have anything to do with it other than a couple of meetings um, early on. Uh, yes, um, uh, Mark Stanley played me, which was a, quite a strange experience. Um, they did play with a few aspects of my story um i mean the overarching arc and trajectory of it was was correct but there were details that were massaged shall we say in the name of drama um but yeah it was uh you know it was a, it was a a powerful piece of work and it very much mirrored the structure of the book which was um you know in plain sight which was Based on a, a, a series of very long form interviews I did with Savile over, over seven years, six or seven years. And then, you know, the, the, the structure of that book cuts between those interviews and, um, you know, a sort of fairly forensic recreation of his past and then jumps forward to, uh, also jumps forward to the sort of, um, the scandal that erupted after his death and how that, how that sort of sucked in many different people and many different organisations and institutions from the BBC to the National Health Service to the Royal Family and beyond. Mm.
2: Oh, I see Andrew is joining us. Hello, Andrew. I'm
0: sorry, apologies.
1: I was doing something else. and didn't realize the time.
2: No worries at all. We're <laughs> just starting. I was actually just going to uh, to ask Dan, uh, most of our listeners and viewers are not British, in fact. Yeah. I-, I doubt if many of them will have seen the drama that we're talking, we've just talked about. Could you give, for somebody who really knows very little about Savile, your sort of two-minute upsum of, kind of who he was and why he was so important?
0: Yeah, well, Jimmy Savile was a, an extraordinary figure in the sort of history of post-war British popular culture. He made his name in the dance halls of the 1950s in, in northern England. He pioneered playing records for young people to dance to in dance halls rather than live bands um he became a sort of star within the Mecca organization which ran over 100 dance halls which is, you know the equivalent of modern day nightclubs or discos um across the country and from that he got his break in in radio he first went on to radio luxembourg um with a show called the teen and twenty disc club and from there he moved on to bbc radio 1 and from there broke into to television actually it was television first he he was the first presenter of an iconic um pop music show in in 1964 called Top of the Pops you know at a time when pop music was erupting as a sort of cultural force across the world he was a guy who was right on that on the breaking wave of that and he he from there he became what i describe almost as britain's first celebrity somebody who was famous for being famous and within that he he became renowned as a charitable fundraiser so he was he was a very odd-looking character. He he had sort of peroxide white blonde dyed sort of blonde hair cut into this sort of medieval style bob. Um he wore tracksuits. He wore sort of outlandish clothes. He wore garish jewelry. He Always had a huge cigar in his mouth. He was like a caricature really. He was a he's what I describe as a sort of heat-seeking missile for publicity. Hmm. So he was a huge figure not not universally loved quite a lot of people were suspicious of him because i mean myself included um but he managed to inveigle himself into extraordinary um areas of british society and walked through you know walked the corridors of power whether that be with government royal family etc he was from you know working class very very work, poor working class background so he he rose up through these sort of social echelons to become a very powerful figure within the BBC, a very powerful figure within um, society at large through his charitable endeavours. But there were always, always rumours about him and always whispers about he was never married, he never you know, had a relationship that anybody knew of, and there were always rumours about his predilection for... Um, young young girls you know his there were rumors about paedophilia that that never went away and after he died in 2011 a year later those rumors erupted with a a, a, an ITV documentary in um in October 2012 and from there the the facade that he built around himself crumbled and um many hundreds of people came forward with uh, testimonies of how they'd been abused by Jimmy Savile over the course of his 85-year life, you know, and of that, you know, 50 years of that at least had been spent in the public eye. That's, I
2: mean, it is such an incredible story. You, you your, your own book, which is, I think, the definitive book, in, it's called In Plain Sight. And my father, by the way, I, I was saying this early to Andrew in the introduction, my father knew Savile. My father was a, a sort of local um, Yorkshire comedian and comic writer, and then went on to be a BBC producer. And he knew him from the days when he was working the clubs, and he always knew him as a thug, as a as a man to be avoided, a man to be slightly feared. You know, he's physically intimidating as much as anything else. Uh, and my, my my younger sister had an autograph book, and those were the days where people would come to meet celebrities. And and he said, no, you're not going to meet Jimmy Samuel. You can meet all the other people I know, but he's a wrong That's the phrase he used. He's a wrong not somebody you'd leave your uh, your teenage daughter alone with or even introduce her to. And this was, we're talking now the mid-1970s. And apparently his own autobiography, he writes, which was published years before his death, he wrote quite openly about what he would do to teenage girls in the nightclub, knowing they were underage and boasting about it. And all this happened, and nobody seemed to sort of care.
0: It was extraordinary. I mean, he, it, you know, the, as you say, the title of the book is "In Plain In Plain Sight," and his modus operandi really was to put it all out there. You know, he did, he had a newspaper column um, in the Sunday People. He, you know, as I said, he was this heat-seeking missile for publicity, and he he put it all out there. He put it all out there in his autobiography, which was published in 1974 you know about there were the stories were legion of him sort of picking up teenage girls and making you know desperate or not desperate but sort of laughing escapes from suspicious parents you know i mean he 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 talked about it he wrote about it and i think it was for him it was this high wire act that i believe he got a great thrill out of um sailing so close to the wind being getting so close to the flame and even to the point where you know, there were so many cases that once he died. You know, I interviewed him from two thousand and four. He died in two thousand and eleven, and these interviews were sort of three, four days at a time. I sometimes stayed with him in his flats in Leeds and Scarborough. He was had this sort of nomadic existence where he bounced around, bounced around the country. And what what I was able to do after his death, and after the the tidal wave of of allegations, sort of destroyed. The, the the sort of the, the mystique or the facade of Jimmy Savile is I was able to actually triangulate much of what he'd written in public, either in newspaper articles or in books or in interviews, et cetera, where he'd alluded to these liaisons, as he called it. And it was always a bit of fun with Jimmy Savile. It was always nobody got hurt. I never took advantage of anybody and all this sort of stuff. It was, and I was able to sort of triangulate that with, with real people who it actually happened to. And often the, the case would be that he would be writing about this the week after he committed the offence. I mean, that's that's how sort of sick it was. Yeah. Um, but that's how um, how he liked to sail very close to the wind, and that and and he correctly um, he correctly sort of calibrated that the power of celebrity and his influence and the nature of his connections, which went right the way up into the very top echelons of government to Prince Charles, now King Charles, um, the Duke of Edinburgh, um, Louis Mountbatten, Lord Mountbatten, you know, who was the sort of, as you, you both well know, the sort of eminence grise behind the crown. Um, he correctly calibrated the, the combination of his celebrity, his charitable good works, and, and his... Influence, stroke, connections would be enough to 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 um, protect him. And when, when, things, when things got got really close, and when the newspapers were on to him, he would play the card of "Do you want me to pull the funding for this hospital? Are you really going to take down the guy that rebuilt this hospital or raises all the money for this?" And that's 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 what he did. And it and it tragically he was able to go to his grave um, with his reputation intact. I mean, did the
1: victims come forward to the authorities and they just didn't take them seriously? I mean, there was also a case of the BBC programme Newsnight pulling an investigation. I mean, what's the background to that?
0: Yeah, the victims did come forward, I mean, throughout his life, um, not in the numbers that came forward after the ITV documentary. I mean, Marian Jones, of, who was the investigative editor of Newsnight at the BBC, was looking into Savile for many many years and the reason for this is that Marion, as a teenager had an aunt and had an aunt his mother's sister I believe who was the headmistress or the governess at a sort of a posh borstal or remand school for troubled girls in Surrey called um, Duncroft. Myrian and his parents went to visit his aunt and witnessed Jimmy Savile sort of driving onto this these grounds, which, you know, they, they were gated, they were secure, they were meant to keep girls in. Um, And he witnessed Jimmy Savile driving these girls off the grounds. So he was very, very suspicious, as were his parents, who remonstrated with his auntie, who was the, you know, who was the head of this institution. Um So, so Marion was always suspicious. When Savile died, he went to... His editor at Newsnight and said I want to put this investigation into place and very quickly that investigation gathered pace Myron was aware of people who were chatting who were ex um, you know ex Duncroft girls and talking about how how they'd been abused by Savile online this chatter was happening in addition to you know people who'd come forward in the past and just been thrown out by the police or just dismissed Um, so Myron and Liz McKean had this investigation, it was not run by the BBC. It was axed, and this the the the, the controversy over that um, following the ITV documentary in October the following year um, led to the uh, resignation of of the Director General of the BBC. It was a huge huge controversy, one that the BBC hasn't recovered from in my in my view, and hasn't actually um, hasn't actually sort of I don't think. Accepted its true culpability for,
1: and why was it pulled? I mean who put the pressure on on the program?
0: Well, there was a whole um, a whole sort of report inqu- you know inquiry done on it. Um, the official line from the BBC is that Savile had been investigated by the police Surrey police in the um, 1990s um, over allegations from um ex-Duncroft girls that that there had been he, he'd committed abuse there the fact that he was he was investigated over two years it was a bungled it was a the the, the, the police investigation was deeply flawed it culminated in an interview under caution of Savile at Stoke Mandeville Hospital a hospital uh, where he'd rebuilt the spinal injuries unit so and he dictated the the um he dictated the venue for that interview, the timing of that interview, and even got one of his um police police officer acolytes in West Yorkshire to act as a go-between between him and Surrey police. Um the Crown Prosecution Service decided not to take it forward, and and the BBC took that as the fact that it didn't, you know, it wasn't taken forward. The BBC decided, well, actually, there's nothing, there's nothing to report here. The other angle of this was that the BBC had planned a number of um, big tribute shows to Jimmy Savile to run a couple of months after his death, you know, in the run up to Christmas, those tribute shows were broadcast. Um, totally despite sure. the fact that their, their sort of key investigative um, strand in Newsnight and one of their leading, uh, two of their leading investigative journalists had uncovered compelling information about Jimmy Savile's offending. That, that investigation was shelved. It led to both Liz McKean and Marion Jones leaving the BBC or being forced out. Um, it led to George Entwistle losing his job as Director General. The findings of the the the, the work that Liz McKean and Marion had done on that investigation were taken on by um, uh, Mark Williams Thomas and added to. Um, Mark sort of developed the investigation further and went even wider with it. And when that was broadcast in October of the following the, the year following Savile's death, um, it was highly controversial, highly controversial, but it also saw the dam burst in terms of the number of people that came forward in terms of um, uh, with accounts of how they'd been abused, sexually abused, everything ranging from rape to fondling to... You know, everything you can imagine and, and from a, an age range of, you know, infants all the way through to, to to older people.
2: There's one particular story that always struck with me and just showed the power he had over not only the authorities, but his own family. I think his niece complained that he'd abused her. He went, she went to her mother, Jimmy's sister, I think, and said, Uncle Jimmy hurt me.
0: I'm told, I, I, I how, uh, Sorry, you probably know more about this than I do. I interviewed Savile's nephew. I mean, this, this, I think, is extraordinary. Savile's nephew, uh, Guy Marsden, I think, had a sort of quite a troubled youth, I think, would be fair to say, in Leeds. He ran away as a teenager with a couple of friends, ended up at King's Cross or Euston Station, which in the 60s and 70s was sort of a, a very seedy part of town in London and, and a notorious sort of pickup. Uh, pick up spots for waifs and strays. And they were picked up by some strange guy and taken to a, a dingy flat somewhere and put up, you know, by this, this adult male. And after a few days, this is a year before mobile phones and before the internet and email and all this sort of stuff. And, you know, Guy Marsden's family didn't know where he was. He'd run away from home. And then out of nowhere, Savile, Jimmy Savile comes to this flat doesn't even bat an eyelid to see his nephew there and then takes them off to another flat in London, installs them into another flat in London. And according to Guy, um, then took them to parties, which were, you know, the only people at those parties were children and adult males. And the role of Guy Marsden and his friends apparently was to sort of keep these children calm at these parties. So, um... Yeah, I mean, it was a, it was. It, it, sto- story is the story is sort of truly sickening. I mean, it's it's.
2: The, the I think, people- well, I
0: think the sister said, "I'll have a word with Uncle Jimmy.
2: He can sometimes go too far." As if that was gonna, as if that was it. Not, I'm going to go to the police because my own child has been horribly abused. But there seems to be. I'm, I'm very interested in this difference between, you know, there are a lot of leering, leching, grabby, gropy men in media at that time. I work with a few of them. But there's obviously a a bit of a gulf between that and the kind of outright predator um, and sex offender and rapist, which was Savile. But somehow the fact that a lot of bad behavior was tolerated, maybe that meant that the really vicious predators kind of were not identified. It was a permissive age. Maybe it wasn't cool to kind of call people up on. Behavior. Well,
1: commercial considerations too. Here he was, presumably a great success for the BBC. The last thing they wanted to do was just their cash cow.
0: There was a huge that, that was a huge factor. Without a doubt, Andrew. I mean, he was a powerful figure who delivered huge ratings success with programs like Jim'll Fix It, which, for the benefit of your overseas audience, you know, ran from the nineteen seventies all the way through to the late eighties or early nineties, I think it was. And Jim'll Fix It was effectively a dream fulfillment show where people and mainly children wrote in to Jimmy Savile asking for their dreams to be granted. And that could be anything from, you know, I don't know, swimming with dolphins to driving a racing car to singing with a pop group or whatever. But he was this sort of father Christmas like character. And he was this, he'd been sort of created as the, the nation's, an uncle to the nation's children, if you like, even a slightly odd looking and a uh, sinister uncle as, as as i found him um we did all the ads for for safety ads for clunk click every trip yeah, i mean he did he did that he, he he released a book called stranger danger about to 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 phil's point yeah. you know i grew up in an era where you know it was all about oh you don't want to go in the woods because there's that strange there, there might be strange men in there and, but pedophilia as a term wasn't used it wasn't a, a term that was in popular um it wasn't in the popular discussion it wasn't Something that people really acknowledged or spoke about. It was more about sort of strange men that you might encounter in in the woods or you know on a dark night and things like that. And you had to be wary of them. And Jimmy Savile even wrote a book called Stranger Danger that was um, that amazing. was aimed at children to warn them about you know going off with adult strangers. I mean, again, th- that was just a classic technique of his to sort of. Get as close as almost, you know. He started everything almost from the point of guilt and then moved backwards. That was his MO. And you know, with publishing a book like that, it's almost like you know that was a, almost a sort of archetypal example of that. But you're right, you're right, though, Andrew. He was a a huge ratings w- winner for the BBC. He was a huge cash cow, both for the the newspapers he worked for, the the the, the broadcasters he worked for, but also the charities. And, you know, particularly in the 1980s, when Margaret Thatcher came to government on a, came to power on a raft of of spending cuts, here was a guy who was going to galvanise national fundraising appeals, the likes of which probably hadn't been seen since the Second World War. And, you know, the most sort of high profile was the rebuilding of the spinal injuries unit, the National Spinal Injuries Unit at Stoke Mandeville, which which Jimmy Savile spearheaded and became this sort of national icon about. And, secured his knighthood um through and you know margaret thatcher campaigned for the whole virtually the whole of her premiership to get him a knighthood every single this list she campaigned vociferously to get hey it's ryan reynolds and i'm here with keith
2: co-star of my upcoming film if only in theaters may 17th do you want to tell people the big news
0: Him a knighthood. She finally succeeded with her outgoing honours list, and his response in a memorable interview with Lynn Barber, the, the great um, you know broadsheet interviewer, to she had pressed him on all the rumours about the fact that he liked young girls. Why do these rumours persist about you, Jimmy? Despite everything that you've done, despite your 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 um, image as a sort of fundraiser extraordinaire. And then she asked him about the knighthood, and his response was, "I'm off the hook." And I think that says it all. He realised that, that those sorts of, you know, that level of influence, that level of society he penetrated and, and the accolades that being the knighthood from Margaret Thatcher and his relationship with the royals, the fact he was a, a de facto advisor to Prince Charles, it made him untouchable. And, he, and, it, and it proved to be correct, unfortunately.
1: I mean, it's a weird thing because he was advising Charles and Diana on their marriage problems, and yet he'd never really had a relationship in his own life. I mean, it seems extraordinary naivety on the part of the royals to to, to bring him so close.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, he claims that that relationship with the royals started with Mountbatten through his um, work with the marines at Limpstone, or Limpstone in the in the southwest of England, and then that quickly sort of moved through the Duke of Edinburgh. I mean to the extent where that he was using the Duke of Edinburgh's private press office during the um during the Stoke Mandeville campaign to put pressure, you know, on on major sort of donors like Victor Matthews, who owned the, the Daily Express at the time and was a, a building magnate. Um and you know in the in the famous squidgy gate tapes, Diana talks of um you know of uh Jimmy Savile being a kind of mentor to Prince Charles. And, you know, after Savile died, in the period between his death and the ITV documentary that outed him for what he was, there was an auction of all his, you know, many of his sort of worldly possessions and belongings. And these range from sort of garish tracksuits and stage costumes and jewellery and cigars. But in there was a, a vast trove of letters and messages from members of the royal family, specifically Prince Charles, and in one Prince Charles way, you know, the, the, the country will never know, will never truly know what you've done for it. I mean, this was a relationship that was close and that was real. And Savile was seen as somebody who could speak sense to the heir to the throne and speak to him in in the in the in the language of the common man, if you like. I mean, there's some suggestion that Matt Batten
1: may have had paedophile tendencies. I mean, was there any connection between the two of them, or was it purely on the level of charity and other things. Well, I,
0: I, I mean, according to Savile, I mean, I I could find nothing, you know, in, in, in nothing on record about it. But according to Savile, Mountbatten recognised something in in Savile. You know, he recognised something of himself. So it's interesting that you say that because you know there's also there was also psychiatric nurses who worked at Broadmoor Hospital, which was you know again for the benefit of overseas listeners the 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 biggest and probably most notorious psychiatric hospital in britain which houses some of its most dangerous and notorious criminals and savile effectively ran that hospital from 1988 and he had an association with broadmoor that, that dated back to the late 60s um but psychiatric nurses in that hospital reported that the the paedophiles gravitated towards savile so I don't know, I don't know about Mountbatten, but I do know that Savile told me that, that Mountbatten recognized something of himself in Savile. Maybe, you know, I think he described it as a sort of can do attitude, a sort of like get on with it, get it done. But who knows what that, what, what the reality of that really well, was. Well, maybe it's
2: also the, the public face and the private vice. That was perhaps the, the comparison. Did they also, wasn't they also allowed keys to certain institutions? So you yeah, could
0: he had, access he, wards? He had keys to Broadmoor. He had keys to Broadmoor. I mean, Broadmoor housed, you know, Peter Sutcliffe, Ronnie Cray, um, you know, some of the most notorious killers and criminals in Britain. And Savile had keys. He had his own office there. He was able to come and go as he wished. To have a chat with Peter Sutcliffe or something. Yeah. I mean, he, he said to me, I said, well, you know, he met Peter Sutcliffe the first time when Peter Sutcliffe, after he was caught and sentenced, he went to Parkhurst first on the Isle of Wight. And Savile went there and met Sutcliffe there first, and he said to me that Sutcliffe was, in his words, as good as gold. Peter was as good as gold. He also organised a, a photo opportunity with the very unfortunate <coughs> Frank Bruno at a time when Frank Bruno was recovering from, you know, quite a serious mental episode. And I think sort of Savile had, uh, Savile had this ability to identify people when they're at their most vulnerable. And I think he did that with, with Bruno as well. And there is a, a sort of infamous picture of Br- Frank Bruno being introduced completely unawares to Peter Sutcliffe, you know, the Yorkshire Ripper in Broadmoor while Savile looks on. Because he was sort of playing with you too. The, I mean, you talk about him hiding in plain sight
1: and, and taunt, almost taunting you at times to push him. Uh, and, and I mean, that must have been very difficult for you because you must have had your own suspicions but, and presumably wanted to draw him out.
0: Yeah, I mean, he was definitely playing with me. I think he was trying to groom me like he groomed many other people. I think he was trying to groom me to secure his epitaph in print because he surely knew that once he died, it was all going to come out. I mean, the the epitaph he wanted on his gravestone, which was was on his gravestone, was it was good while it lasted, um, which I think, you know, you can read into. But certainly he was playing with me. He was leaving this breadcrumb trail of clues he was sort of pulling me on but also he had me off balance I mean at times you know I didn't I it wasn't always confrontational I think that the the BBC um, dramatization sort of you know it, it tells the story but it's it's not as nuanced as it was obviously you know at times he could be charming and beguiling and and mysterious and funny you know almost funny at times you know not not in a sort of comedic sense but just sort of but then he could be dark and sinister and menacing as well, and and he certainly he. In, in, I was interviewing him at a time where his celebrity had very much faded. He was a relic. He wasn't getting a lot of publicity other than the the big magazine features that I was writing, which exposed these sort of very odd elements of his life. You know, the power, the influence. You know, not not the paedophilia because that nobody was able to nail that while he was alive. But yes, it was. A, there's not a day you go that goes past where I don't wonder why of all the people um, to become sort of fixated with from a journalistic point of view, it had to be him.
1: I mean, you talk of actually being quite upset when he died. I think you had a birthday party organised and, and you found it very difficult to, to really engage with the party.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I was really, I was upset because I'd spent so long and I was trying to write this book and I didn't feel like I got to the truth. You know the 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 title of the book was initially going to be Apocalypse Now. Then, you know, I mean, you know, in the sense that I felt that I was going up the river, up this sort of dark river, and there was going to be this climactic confrontation at the end when I when I'd found everything out and I was going to present it to Savile, but he died before I was able to do that. He died before, you know, I'd I'd stopped interviewing him for about a year and a half because he'd said a few things to me that had made me very uncomfortable. And I thought, actually, I'd heard these uh, – he'd he told the same stories over and over again, and you had to be very patient for him to sort of reveal a chink of light that would then illuminate something that lay within, and you'd have to listen to a lot of the same stories. So I'd made the decision that I was going to go and find people from his past that knew him or worked with him or encountered him or experienced him and work in big, wide, concentric circles – and then moved my way in. And, and when I came right to the center of that, that's when I would go, I would be, you know, I'd gone down the river and I would have been at that climactic encounter where I was going to put everything to him. I'd started putting stuff to him, but this is from his very early days, you know. Um, so I was upset because I felt like I'd wasted seven years of my life. And I wait. I didn't feel like I got to the truth. And I felt like this project that I, that I was getting closer to was in vain. And... And I also, I think, you know, I won't lie that, um, you know, I didn't know what he was then. I had my suspicions about him, but I didn't know for sure. And I was upset that I hadn't been aware that he was ill um, and that he died and I hadn't spoken to him in some months before. So, and it was, you know, it was the day before my birthday and it was two days before his birthday. And generally I phoned him up on his birthday because it, it came after my own and that would be sort of when we i you know we'd have a chat and we'd arrange the next meeting um so there was a, there was a, a, a wide there was a, a whole slew of emotions that i was feeling at that time there was frustration there was sort of a certain element of sadness because at that point he hadn't been exposed for what he was and let's not forget that he had in effect a 3 day quasi state funeral i mean the outpouring of um affection for him when he died could not be in more contrast or starkly contrasted to what we now know about him, and that's that's the sort of journey that I went on, and that's the journey that everybody, in a sense, has been on with Jimmy Savile. Did he have and
2: actually he, any
0: he, friends? It sounds like he formed relationships with journalists, perhaps more than with other people. He did have. He had the thing about Savile is he moved around a lot. He had this nomadic life, and I think that that helped him to a to to keep his offending concealed he had flats in Scarborough he had a place in the Highlands of Scotland he had a place in Leeds he had a flat in London he had motorhomes you know that he was constantly on the move he never stayed in, and he he had flats at you know at Stoke Mandeville Hospital at Broadmoor so you never quite knew where he was he was always moving around and in each of those locations he had what he called a team which would be sort of acolytes and and enablers and sort of you know, people that would come and indulge him when he probably wanted a bit of company because he was a solitary figure. And like, you know, I think like a lot of predatory pedophiles, you know, he was a solitary figure. Um, but at times he needed company and he had these people that he could call on. Whether you would call them friends in the, in the sense that the three of us would probably regard those closest to us as friends, I couldn't tell you. But, you know, amongst those groups, Um, you know, the first time I interviewed him in Leeds, at his flat in Leeds, he was having one of his, what they were called Friday morning clubs, which were, he'd have people over for a sort of coffee or a whiskey on a Friday morning. And there were lots of West Yorkshire police officers or ex-police officers there, because, you know, as part of these sort of circles of of security he built around himself, he, he cultivated relationships with the police from his very early days. And I I arrived and I rang the doorbell and I was let into a little sort of um, vestibule area at the front and he came down from his penthouse flat with two big guys at the front of this small lift and they came out in uh, uh, you know in front of him and this big plume of cigar smoke sort of you know emerged from this small little lift and he said frisk him and I was pushed up against the wall by these guys one of whom was a, 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 a former police officer. And I was frisked, and it was sort of like from the very first moment he set; he was sort of setting the rules of engagement. Yeah. Wow, on... that's sinister.
1: And I mean, are there not stories of of the Crown Prosecution Service you know, beginning to to create a file on him, and then files were disappearing, and de- you know there were delays? It sounds like there was pressure being put on the, the prosecutors um, from some source.
0: Well, there were. You know, the Crown Prosecution Service did have. You know, were presented files from that, that two year investigation. I mean, the, the problem was that, that it was just sort of police ineptitude or corruption. Um, you know, there is a, a requirement of police forces to share intelligence with the home police force of a, an individual. Um, you know, the, the, it, we could do a whole podcast on the, on the, um, ineptitude of the West Yorkshire police. Around their handling of information um, of the Surrey Police investigation and of the fact of the the the, the you know there, what what came out after his death across many different police forces is there were records of Savile. you know there were records that you know there, he was on the the pedophile on paedophile sort of files within Scotland Yard from the ni- from the mid 1960s and. You know there were accounts, you know, of, there were there were um, records of uh, allegations of abuse and sexual assaults in Sussex, in North Yorkshire, in West Yorkshire, and there were alleg- there were there were records of police routinely going round to his house in or his flats or his properties in Leeds, uh, inquiring about the whereabouts of runaway girls. Again, stuff that he wrote about very openly in his you know in his autobiography. So his fingerprints if you like or his his presence is there right the way in in police records all the way across the country but it just wasn't put together whether that was whether it was sort of willfully disappeared or deliberately disappeared very difficult to say I mean I have grave suspicions about um the West Yorkshire Police's handling his home police force's handling of intelligence about Savile and he and he had um he was well known to police officers in the West Yorkshire Police. He had friends that visit, you know, friends who were police officers who visited his house. He had a West Yorkshire Police officer who arranged the meeting, you know, the, the interview under caution with the Surrey Police um, as part of that Surrey Police investigation. So, yeah, I mean, I think, I think ineptitude would be the kind way to put it. And well, I this
2: was the same police force, of course, that famously bungled the Yorkshire Ripper investigation.
0: Also of which didn't uh, put and, and, Jimmy, sub- and I mean, you know, many. As you know, many, many hundreds, if not thousands, of men were sort of brought into or, or questioned over that, including Jimmy Savile, because one of the um, victims was found in Randhay Park outside his flat, which he, didn't, he just recently moved into. And Jimmy Savile was required to give a mould of his teeth because bite marks were found on on this victim. And Savile was known in police circles to spend a lot of time in Chapel Town, you know, the red light district, you know, red light area of Leeds. So the fact that he was and also Savile then in cl- in classic sort of Savile style offered to to be a sort of go-between between the police and the Ripper because obviously there was a era of sort of fake or hoax phone calls or, you know, it, so yeah, he was he was pulled into that and um he was very interested when the body was found in the park outside his house. And one of the police officers who, and I think it was the police officer who actually frisked me on that first visit, told me that he was he was very interested, you know, very interested in sort of in and about, you know, all the police that were in the park looking at that victim.
1: I mean, You also have a story where I think it was, was it Gary Glitter, was the, the, he was rung up um, by uh, or had a conversation with lawyers basically to pr- protect himself because he was, there were some suspicions about him and he looked at you very obviously all the way through that phone call. Basically he was sending a message to you that, you know, if you cause trouble, I can make trouble. Yeah. And, I mean, he he, the suspicion this may even have been a
0: made up call that someone just yeah, ran. It, it was the, it was actually the Oakdale de la Guerin children's oh, home was, Jersey, where there was a, you know, it was a children's home in Jersey where there was a sort of awful scandal broke out about abuse and there were sort of, you know, suggestions that bodies had been found and maybe some children had been killed or murdered there. And a picture emerged of Saville at the home um, in the 1970s surrounded by children. And he had moved to quash this as quickly as possible. And like you say, he, I was in his flat interviewing him and there was this sort of big set piece phone call in which he was on the phone, seemingly to his lawyers, talking about how much he would take this newspaper down for, and what he'd settle you know what how much how much would be a good result for him and Yes, you know, we'll just do what we always do when the papers do this, we will threaten them, and we will become very litigious and He was looking me in the eye throughout this conversation, and then he put the phone down and said well that's that's how we handle that situation." And in the police interview, I know I keep coming back to this, but it is extraordinary, the Surrey police interview under caution they did with him, he threatened the Surrey the two Surrey police officers with the same thing. He said, you have to understand that I have a system. I have a system. When this sort of thing happens, he even admitted it happened quite a lot, that there were these allegations, that he gives these sort of crazy letters, as he describes them, to the to, to police officers that he knows so that they can deal with it. I mean... <laughs> And then he said, you know, if, if this goes further, you will find out how my system works, and that will involve us being in the Old Bailey and you having to face my very, very high-powered legal team. So there was this sort of implicit threat in everything that he he said around that. And he did threaten, and he did successfully um, get a lot of money out of newspapers that tried to smear him. There, there's no doubt about it. The press were, were very aware of how litigious he was, I'm very aware, aware how connected he was. And I think the really interesting thing, there was a series of really quite lurid newspaper stories about him in 1983 at a time when his fame and, and popularity were perhaps at their peak. He was just about to open the newly rebuilt Spinal Injury Centre at, at Stoke Mandeville. On one side of him standing Prince Charles, on the other side of him standing, um, you know, Princess Diana. His crowning achievement, you know, he knew that then the, 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 the knighthood that without doubt Thatcher had promised him was going to be his, and he would be, as he told Lim Barber, off the hook. And yet, in the build-up to that, The son ran this sort of three-day series of interviews with him that were very lurid about his, you know, to to what Phil described, or Phil's father described, his sort of thuggish days in the dance halls, his very sort of mechanical view of the, and mechanical was a word he used, mechanical view of the opposite sex and sex itself. Um, it was really dark. It was really sinister, and it was really out of kilter with what was about to happen, i.e., the, the you yeah. know the, the the success of a nationwide fundraising campaign to rebuild this this essential medical facility of which he had become sort of lionized, and yet this very very odd series of, of stories, and you know I am sure that they that somebody had him that one of the newspapers had him and he did some sort of trade off somewhere to be able or or threatened to pull the plug on on the spinal injuries unit to do something like that because you know his his charitable foundation had a sort of ownership stake in it so he was able to threaten people with that and probably the quid the quid pro quo was well give us something that's 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 out of step with what we think of Jimmy Savile, and yet, and at the same time, he then traded it off with some other stories in other tabloids. I mean, it was just classic, classic media maneuvering, crisis management, if you like. And that crisis management can only have been around allegations of what he was up to. And there was certainly at that time there was um, he'd made one of his biggest mistakes, which was making an appearance at a primary school in Leeds, and then allowing a couple in his words, allowing a couple of these primary school children to come into his flat afterwards. And, and the father of one of these girls had found out about the fact that her, his daughter had been inside his flat and had hit the roof in no uncertain terms and threatened to expose him. And he told me, Sabal told me that, in his words, he'd won the respect of Fleet Street because they'd had people parked outside his house for two years They'd gone through his bins and they could find nothing. And in his words, I didn't even blink. And that won me the respect of Fleet Street. He was a, he was a he was a an arch operator and manipulator of, of the media and of um of all the sort of levers that that control it.
1: And was he just abusing girls?
0: And and what sort of age of girls? Uh no, girls and boys, mainly girls. Um I would think that his, you know, the, 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 the there were many hundreds that came out. I and mean, I think that probably they were pre-16. I imagine that the, the, the largest number would have been between 10 and 14. So they were underage girls. These were and often of-
2: from bad backgrounds, maybe in children's homes, you can see the picture you paint of his power, his connections, the importance he was to major institutions in the country. And How would they um, listen to a fourteen-year-old girl, girl from some children's
0: home, Exactly. Who's maybe been doing shoplifting or something? And you can just see it. Exactly. I mean, nobody would believe. Why would anybody? Ta- as as you correctly say, Phil. You know, why would anybody take this girl's word for it over this guy who was a huge celebrity, who was friends with the prime minister and the and the heir to the throne, and the police. Be- and the police, the police? I was on TV and, and raising money and the parents all thought he was wonderful because he was this selfless bachelor who was sort of doing running the length, you know, running or cycling the length of the country to raise money for hospitals. And actually, the think that the institutions he was raising money for were the institutions that enabled his offending. So was everything predicated? I mean, the, the whole career was predicated around the, the paedophilia. Or do you think the
1: two were sort of in running in parallel and, and, and moved between the two?
0: I think I think that's a that's a really good question. It's difficult to say. I don't know whether he he created his career. I think power was the really key thing for him when he first he held his first record dance, which was you know in the late forties or early fifties, at a time when people went out and only danced to bands or 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 orchestras. You know, it was all live music, and he hit upon this. He had a friend who'd. Created this sort of um, a, a gramophone with an amplified gramophone, so he was able to play records, and people would dance to those records. And it was a very small event in a in a very small room in somewhere in Leeds. I can't remember where. And he talks about um, suddenly understanding the power he had over people by being able to make them dance, by being able to make them dance quickly or slowly. And then that, I think, that understanding of power is what drove his career progression because from there he took that idea into the dance halls and did that on a much larger scale and he started to do it with two turntables rather than one so he became the sort of you know the originator one of the originators of of modern dj culture if you like um and he changed the whole sort of paradigm around night you know nightlife or or dancing or or, or popular music um but but what and I asked him about this. I said, did you really love the music? Because he had no music in his house. And considering in any yeah. of his houses, considering he'd made his name as a DJ, made his name in the dance hall, made his name on radio, made his name in on television as, as, you know, for Top of the Pops, which is all about pop music. There was never any music in his house. And I said to him, did you actually like the music? And he said, it wasn't about the music. It was about the power. And yeah. I think that, I think that that sort of probably, whether it was about sort of, paedophilia or whether the paedophilia came from the power or the two th- you know the two things were sort of symbiotic i think i think rather that. yeah i think that would be my answer to that well we Gosh, should have the
1: royal family Sorry. distance themselves from from him at all i mean since since he's died he died and, and these things have come out i mean has the king for example made any sort of statement or has he just tried to brush it under the carpet
0: uh i haven't seen any statements i think it's probably been deeply embarrassing um i think it's been a question of sort of you know typical royal family you know don't say anything unless you really have to um just pretend it didn't happen but it did happen and you know uh he was a a key advisor and he was somebody not just a charles but the duke of edinburgh you know liked him and he he won over the Duke of Edinburgh and the Duke of Edinburgh according to Savile you know allowed Savile to use his press office to write letters on you know on the Duke of Edinburgh's headed notepaper to say you know the Duke of Edinburgh would be very grateful if you supported Jimmy Savile in this right. endeavour and stuff like that so and you know he was he was asked to according to Savile again Asked to stand in for members of the royal family at certain, you know, investitures and events, oh my God. And things like that. He was very, very. Um, he was very much sort of liked. Obviously, he was he was like a court jester. I think. I mean, they probably found him incredibly odd, but the fact he had this, he, I think the thing that appealed to them about him was the fact he was able to. He was a sort of a common man who had this ability to communicate with the people somehow you know he was seen as having the sort of common touch that
2: uh, yeah well you would you talk about the power imbalance but another i think difference between then and now is just what it meant to be famous jimmy Tower was properly famous yes a household name tens of millions of people would watch him on the telly at a time when there were only two or maybe three tv stations no internet not much on the radio he was properly importantly famous and i think that both impressed his potential victims, perhaps even drew some of them to him yes, so he definitely. could groom them and exploit them, but it also really undermined those who tried to expose him.
0: Absolutely. I, I totally agree with you. At a time when fame was, you know, this, this sort of boulder rolling down the mountainside of sort of British life and society. And I said, you know, I think I said at the outset, I do believe he was probably Britain's first celebrity in the sense of what we understand celebrity for now, He always said, I have no talent. I don't sing. I don't dance. I don't tell jokes. You know, he played other people's music. He was a sort of TV presenter. You know, he didn't have a talent. Um, He was famous for being famous. And you're absolutely right. At a time when, you know, 20 million people would routinely tune in and watch Jim will fix it on a Saturday evening. And you know, however many millions of people would tune into Top of the Pops every Thursday evening. It was a fixture.
2: There, there were whole comedians built their careers on doing impersonations of him.
0: Yes, you know, including... Mike
2: Yarwood, oh. the Grumbleweeds. I can think of loads of people. Yeah, well... That was their main thing. Oh, look,
0: he sounds like Jimmy Savile. Steve Coogan, you know, who 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 did a fantastic job. I mean, a really incredible job playing Savile in the, in the Reckoning, the recent BBC dramatisation of my book. Um, you know, even he, you know, <laughs> made quite a bit of capital out of doing. I mean, he did impersonations of many people, but Savile was one of them. I mean, he was a stock impersonation. Everybody had a Savile impersonation. It would be now then, now then, or guys and gals, and you know, they were just this sort of and these sort of inane um, catchphrases were again just part of this facade with the jewellery. Yeah, I I love your description of yeah. the court gesture.
2: You sort of think also the Lord of Misrule as well. Yeah, he speaks to something in us that's quite kind of old, I think, and rather, rather strange.
0: And he was very strange about... and
2: very British. It's impossible to imagine someone like that in France, I think. Or
0: the I thing don't. about Savile as well is he was always old. I mean, even at a time you know when he was starting to 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 really make a name for himself in the dance halls, these are teenage kids dancing around to the to the hits of the the late 50s and early 60s, as rock and roll was erupting across society. And then, you know, the Beatles and the and the, the, the sort of British sound. He was in his mid-30s, moving towards 40. He was born in 1926. He was always old. He was this sort of... And, that, and there's something about that sort of court jester clown-like persona. There's something, you know, many people are terrified of clowns. And he had that... I mean, I described him as almost like a Mr. Punch. He looked like Mr. Great Punch. Great expression. Yeah, he had that sort of, you know, that that sort of long nose and that sort of air of menace that you didn't quite yeah. know when the iron fist was going to be revealed from the velvet glove. and yeah. it, frisk and again, him, frisk him. Yeah, to your point, you know, what your father said about him, he reveled in those stories. He was very open about telling those stories about how he tied up troublemakers in his dance halls. And my theory about him for many years of of interviewing him and researching him... And what kept pulling me back was the fact that here was this guy who was so famous, who was so well-known, who was so instantly identifiable, but nobody knew who he was. Nobody knew who he was, even despite the fact of him being this, you know, this sort of incredibly public figure who survived on the oxygen of publicity and, and, and sought it everywhere. Nobody knew who he was. Um, well, I, I know we've
2: prob- we promised to let you go after an hour, and we're nearly up. Yeah. But I could talk for hours about this man uh, and, and I think you're you know, you've absolutely nailed him and captured his kind of dark
0: strangeness so well.
1: Uh, well and the period and the celebrity culture. Um, you know, it's a very wide-ranging book, actually. Well, I yeah.
0: think that I think that I always thought, you know, before I knew what he was, and I was really struggling with what this book was, and I said to you, it was you know, going to be called Apocalypse now, then, and it was going to sort of—I was going to be Willard, and he was this sort of Kurtz-like figure, and it was sort of almost, in a way, because I couldn't work out this thing, and it was like, what? What did it say about me that I was as, as obsessed as I was about this person? But what I felt that it could do, and I think that hopefully I have achieved this, is—is is that it shines a light on. An extraordinary sweep of post-war British popular culture. He is this flickering, malignant light, this Zelig-like character who pops up in all these unlikely scenarios, and through his sort of presence, however unlikely that might be, it does shine a light on pockets of the story of post-war Britain. You know, whether that's at a at a government level, at the you know in the royal family, whether it's a, a, in, within popular culture, whether it's in sort of you know, working class society, whatever else. And I think, you know, I think that that was something I was very conscious of because he had such a long life, and he, and he, and he was in in the public eye for such a very long time. Well, thank you so much for sharing this
2: with us. It's uh, yeah. one of our most interesting conversations. Really enjoyed it. Well, thanks it for having me on.
0: Thank <laughs> no. you back if you ever want to continue. But
2: um, I think we probably will. Thanks, <laughs> thanks so <laughs> come, much,
1: Dan. Come back to you. All the best. That's- Thank you for listening to the Scandalmongers podcast. This has been a Podcast World production. You can get in contact with our show by emailing team at podcastworld.org, placing Scandalmongers in the heading, or via our social media links within the show's bio.